It's great to be back with all of you. I will share, Evie and I had an absolutely wonderful time as we did uh, what I call my version of camping. We went out to Ocala National Forest, and of course I think I've mentioned to you, Evie grew up camping, whereas I grew up with a lot of concrete around me, so I'm very accustomed to the concrete. But we went out in the woods, we got a little cabin in the woods, and it was my version. It had air conditioning, it had Wi-Fi, and it had a full kitchen that I could stock. So I'll camp again. If it's that version of camping, I, I can rough it with the best of them. So my version of uh, giving up creature comfort, so to speak. But Andrew has always did a wonderful job, and it's great to be back with you uh, as we turn our hearts to God's Word and as we turn our attention to worshiping Him by hearing from His Word. Would you bow with me in prayer as we do what we call a prayer of illumination and just kind of a reminder of what this is all about. This is about acknowledging that even as Christians, even as believers, we're dependent upon the Spirit for us to understand and enter into a knowledge of the truth, that we need the present application of the Holy Spirit to show us, think about what we're doing in preaching. We give the meaning of the word, we give the application of the word in order to send us out living the word. We can't do that in our strength. We can't do that in our own. We don't have the wits about us to do that. We need the Spirit. So we are, it's a very important part of worship where we're asking God to open our minds and open our hearts, give us understanding, and show us both as individuals and as a church how the Word impacts and applies, how it's useful in our lives. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word that you've given to us because you love us. And we thank you for the wonderful things disclosed in your word. And we pray now that you might open our hearts, open our minds, give us soft, teachable hearts as we approach your word. That, Father, we would uh, see and ask Holy Spirit that you would be alive and would visit us, that you would exposit and make clear and explain and show us the meaning of the word for our lives as individuals and our lives life as a church. So, Father, we ask and humbly ask and plead that you would move in a mighty way amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we are on Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. So, whether you open your Bibles, the words are printed in the order of worship, or here they are up here, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. And why did God give us his word? Because he loves us. So hear the word of the triune God of love. The text begins, in this way, this is a very common, very familiar story. I think if we were talking to somebody on the street and said, have you ever heard of the rich young ruler? Many would say yes. But do they really understand the impact and the significance of the story? The story begins in verse 17 as Jesus was setting out on the journey. And it's very easy to kind of gloss over that, read that fast, get right to the heart of the passage, and we might be forgetting something. And that is the significance of that word journey. For Jesus is on a journey. And where has that journey taken him? If you remember, we said that the book of Mark is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark divides the literary structure of his account of this narrative of the gospel is divided into two halves. Chapters 1 through 8 give us who is this king? Who is Jesus? What's he like? His personality, how he relates to to people, the fact that he's love and the fact that he's forgiveness, his almightiness, his power. So we see a lot of his healings. The back half, chapters 9 through 16, and we have to put everything in this context, is not simply who this king is, but what this king came to do. In other words, what is his destination? What is his purpose? What is his journey? And Jesus came to die. His destination is Jerusalem for the purpose of dying on the cross. In fact, the very next account, the very next part of the narrative that follows is Jesus is for the third time going to explain and prophesy to his disciples that he's headed to Jerusalem for the express purpose of being handed over, being delivered to the chief priests and the leaders for the purpose of being rejected and killed and three days later will rise again. And so Jesus is setting out on this journey that's taken to him, taking him to a very specific place for a specific purpose. And as he's setting out on this journey, a man, and this is very significant, runs to him. Not out for a casual Sunday stroll. The man has an urgency about us, and Mark, always in his, what I consider kind of a pithy, quick style, picks up on this, and he says, this man runs to him, a man that in the parallel accounts in the Gospels, Matthew calls him a young man, Luke refers to him him as a ruler, so we have a rich young ruler in some senses showing this respect, humbling himself, kneeling before Jesus, and inquiring about what Jesus is all about. In other words, wanting to understand the story of Jesus, 
wanting to understand the nature of the story of Jesus. And Mark is giving us here, in a nutshell, what the nature of that story is all about. And how he goes about doing that is in these three ways. Three specific ways he will challenge us and encourage us to enter into and make sure we understand the nature of Jesus' story. How does the Spirit go about telling this in Mark? He poses a question, he presses a dilemma, and he gives us an unexpected resolution. The Spirit of God is drawing us into the story. We've got the story of Jesus and this encounter with the young rich ruler. And Jesus poses to him a question, and then he presses in upon his heart a basic misunderstanding of the story, and then he resolves it in quite an unexpected way. Let's look at the question. The text begins, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that seems simple enough of a question, doesn't it? Have we never seen on TV Billy Graham crusades? Have we never gone to a church and heard the preacher basically give an invitation, give what's called an altar call, and invite people in order? Why is this man asking this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, as we enter into this question, let's first probe it in its original context before we kind of make the 2,000 plus year leap to our day and age. Let me try to illustrate it this way. The World War II generation is commonly, and I think with very, very good reason, called the greatest generation. Historians remind us that for many of this generation, history can be divided into two periods, before the war and after the war. So in the words of one historian, he says, the Second World War had torn a hole in their world. Everything was different now a different government and society, different hopes and needs, different possibilities and dangers. There was a basic interpretation of the world before and after. Now let's use that illustration and put ourselves back into the New Testament world that Jesus was speaking into, that Jesus was encountering this man in time and place and in history. And especially put within the Jewish mindset, the Jewish context that he would be doing. What would a first century Jewish mindset be towards this question? Well, to begin with, the future would be divided much in the same way. In a first century Jewish mindset, they were looking forward to something that would happen that would make everything different. In their mindset, a great event was coming. A great event would occur that would usher in justice and peace, harmony, and basically endless spring. The world would be new, and their way of speaking about history would be to divide this as this present age and the age to come. And they would divide the world into those two halves. The present age was full of sin and death. Wickedness and corruption, disease, turmoil, and injustice. God's people suffering and wicked people getting away with it. You want to put yourself in a Jewish mindset? Read Psalm 73. We didn't cover it this summer when we were going through our various psalms, but Psalm 73 is written by a man by the name of Asaph, and Asaph is lamenting. He starts the psalm saying, Surely God is good to Israel, 
But as for me, I almost stumbled. My foot almost slipped. And he's lamenting. And you know what he's saying? If I could paraphrase, he's basically saying, I look around me and wicked people can do whatever I want. I'm trying to work my tail off. I'm working hard to follow God. I'm working hard to keep the law. I'm showing up in the temple. And what is it getting me? It's not getting me anything. And he had a basic paradigm, a way of approaching life and looking at life. And of course, looking forward, what would the age to come be? It would be a time when everything will be different. Everything will be new. Endless spring, peace, justice, prosperity, an end to Israel's enemies, when Yahweh would return and make everything right. And so now for a person in that culture, this is the culture that the, young, rich, the rich young ruler is growing up in. This is the culture he's breathing in like we breathe in air. It would be an obvious question to basically say, how do I get in on the age to come? For the age to come and eternal life were the same thing in a first century Jewish mindset. How can I be sure I will be one of those that inherit eternal life? How can I be sure I get in on this? It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, to be honest, I heard it for the first time this past summer. You ever heard the phrase FOMO? People are looking at me like, no, okay. I looked at that this summer too. Kind of like I, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. It's basically looking at everything and saying, I have to be in on that. I have to be, where's everybody hanging out tonight? Where's the party? I can't, if my friends are going here, it doesn't matter that I'm exhausted, 104 fever, whatever. I'm going to get in on that party. I can't. Fear of missing out. I have to be in on it. This is the urgency that this man, and notice Jesus doesn't condemn the question. Jesus doesn't turn away from the question. Okay, now of course this question has much more significant implications than simply missing the party, does it not? For the age to come is another way of saying the kingdom of God. God ruling the world the way he always wanted to. I want to explain one more thing before we move on to our next point as well. If you look with me at verse 21, when Jesus looks at the man and mentions treasure in heaven, this doesn't necessarily mean that the man must somehow go to heaven to obtain this treasure. It means that God will keep it kind of in heaven, God's storehouse. He will keep it stored up for him until the time when in the age of come, all will be revealed. So, for example, in the words of one commentator on this passage, the reason you have treasure in heaven, which is God's storehouse, is so that you can enjoy it in the age to come, when God brings heaven and earth together at last. Eternal life is not life in a timeless, otherworldly dimension, but it is the life of the age to come. Other places in the New Testament speak this way. Think of Peter's first letter, where Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you kept in God's storehouse, waiting for the time when we enjoy it in the age to come, when God brings heaven and earth together at last. Now this young man is asking this question, and it is a good question. 
Jesus does not condemn this question. In fact, I think when he gets to verse 21 and the man goes away disheartened, I think this is part of what it means for Jesus to look at him in love. Luke refers that he's looking at him with sadness. I think Jesus is actually affirming and feeling a great deal of, in his humanness, feeling a great deal of empathy and compassion on this man. It is, may I dare ask, the most important question that you can ask, which leads me to an application. Do we, do you, give enough attention to this question in your own life? Or are you so busy, so distracted, so in fear of missing out that you never say no to whatever the next thing, that you never take time to experience quiet, solitude, reflection, and time to think upon the more urgent, the more significant things of life. In other words, is there ever a time in your life when you unplug? And I don't mean unplug and then turn on Sports Center. I mean, unplug and get before the Lord in quiet, maybe with a journal, maybe before his work, and ask him to minister to your soul in such a way as to ask the question about the age to come. Do you take the time to probe and to examine and to reflect on this question in your life? So what is the answer to this question? You'd like to know. Jesus doesn't go there yet, at least directly. Before he does, he wants us to search our hearts. He wants us to go deeper. So what does he do? He presses in on us a dilemma. The text continues, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, and by the way, this is coming up as one of the lines that just utterly, utterly blows me away. He says, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. I sit there and go, I haven't kept these since 30 seconds ago. But he says, all these I've kept from my youth. And so Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, well, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Again, we have to look at this in its original context. See, in the world of the first century, there were a lot of people, remember I said, they divide present age, age to come. How can we part, be a part of the age to come? And there were a lot of different groups that had answers to that question. In the New Testament world, you had Pharisees, they had an answer to that question. You had Sadducees, they had a take. You had Essenes, those who were at the place in Qumran, we found our Dead Sea Scrolls, that community, they had an essence, and basically all of their answers would have to do with interpretation and application of the Jewish law. In other words, the beginning of Jesus' response to this man, you know the commandments, every one of those groups said, yeah, we do. And we know exactly what you do, and we'll tell you, and we'll also tell you, you ought to be a part of our group. And so notice here how Jesus begins to press in on, their, on this man's heart. See, he's wanting him, and this is where this is going, he's wanting this young man to face a dilemma. 
Look at how Jesus does it. He begins by echoing and affirming what the Old Testament scriptures teach concerning the law. Now, what do the Old Testament scriptures teach concerning the law? Deuteronomy chapter 30 says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. So look at this. When Jesus says, you know the commandments, and he runs through them. Interesting, he runs through commandments 6 through 9. He, go, he kind of loops back to number 5. He throws one in there about defrauding. And he leaves out a couple of commandments, doesn't he? He leaves out the first commandment of have no other gods before me. He's leaving out the foundation of the entire house. It's like he's saying, okay, you want the checklist? I'll give you the checklist. Doom, da da doom, da da doom, da da doom. And here's the man saying, I can, you can picture the man at this point, the ruler kind of going, I love this. I've honored mom and dad. Oh, yeah. I've never cheated on my wife. I'm good to go. I haven't stolen. So far, so good. And he's doing this. And then what does Jesus do? He says, you lack one thing. Now, at first, the man with this kind of what I call checklist mentality is probably going, you know what? 99% is not bad. I only lack one thing. I thought I might get, you know, I studied hard for this test when I ran up to him and asked him, you know, on this. I was thinking I might get an A minus. Here's Jesus saying you only lack one thing. So, you know, before Jesus, and again, I don't want to put my, if I were Jesus, I probably would have given a pregnant pause at this point. You lack one, almost for the, because remember, he is pressing in. This man is missing the story of Jesus. He's pressing in on the heart issue here. Because the man hasn't simply lacked one thing, he lacks everything. He lacks the whole enchilada, if I could put it that way. Because Jesus says, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when he was saying, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, first of all, if this man somehow went, okay, that's all I lack, I could do that. Really? What would happen the next day? or the day after that. But more importantly, when Jesus left out the first commandment, and the commandment also, he left out the one about having, make no idol for yourself and don't take the Lord's name in vain, but have no other gods before me. What is that one thing? Jesus has to be your true treasure. And so when he says to the man, go sell all that you have. It's almost another way of saying, if you want to follow me, you must first 
Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. Whoever would want to save his life, that means whatever treasure you're looking for, whatever you think, he uses the example of riches simply because this man was a wealthy man. He could say whatever you're looking to, to give you identity, to give you meaning, to give you security, to give you safety, to make you somebody. You realize he could be saying, if you look to being a pastor, if you look to being a dad, if you look to being an American, if you look to being right, if you look to having all sorts of friends and having everybody like you, go sell all you have. Come after me. Whoever would save his life must lose it. He is talking about the foundation of discipleship. One commentator put it this way. He said, Jesus' basic demand is not for some logic-chopping, extra observance, some tightening of definition here, some sharpening of exact meaning there. It is for idols and covetousness to be thrown to the winds. Sell up and give to the poor. It is for a radical rethink on what putting God first and not taking his name in vain might mean. This man got it. He understood it but it didn't change his heart. He went away disheartened because he knew he had a lot. He wasn't willing to give up what he was basing his very existence upon. See, the question that the Holy Spirit, if you want to know, do you understand Jesus' story is, what are you basing your life on? I mean, what are you basing your very life? The core of who you are, your acceptance, your forgiveness, You're what it means to be justified. Do you know what it means when we talk about being counted righteous? It means being looked at, declared, and in the sight of God, okay. Do you know that's what every one of us is longing for? We are longing to walk through life freely knowing we're okay. Can you imagine what what that would feel like if we functionally actually believe that? Saying, yeah, you hate me. I'm not really pleased with me either, but I'm okay. Yeah, I blow it, I screw up, I'm a royal mess, but I'm okay. See, this man didn't understand the story of Jesus, and this is the dilemma. Has it pressed in to your heart to understand what is your true treasure? Do you feel the dilemma of the question. See, the disciples get, they're looking at all this. Jesus isn't doing this by himself. He didn't take the man and go off into a corner. This is before the disciples. And they all, hang on, wait a second. Uh, who then can be saved? This is not seeming like, you know, I get his, and maybe I'm not a well, you know. We have no idea how wealthy each one, you know, maybe Peter's sitting there saying, I don't have a lot of riches, but I got other things I trust in. And they're starting to get it. Who then can be saved? Which brings us to our final point. The unexpected resolution to the dilemma. Jesus looks at them and he says, with man, it is impossible. Now stop there. Let's not be so glib and read over that so quickly that we miss the force, the gravity, the weight of those words. With man, it is impossible. So in other words, there's nothing you can do? That's right, there's nothing you can do. Wait a second, there is absolute, that's right, there's, with man, what does impossible mean? It means impossible. But praise God, 
The sentence doesn't end there. It says, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And then Peter begins to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus affirms him. He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and what he's saying is what you receive there by the way it's it's not a prosperity gospel what he's saying is you receive new life new creation and a new family look at this A hundredfold you receive your fellow disciples of every tribe and tongue and race and language. You receive new followers of Jesus Christ who are your brothers and sisters. And I mean that is a hundredfold in this life. Where the age to come has broken in to this present age. And then he says with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And then he says, kind of cryptically, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Of course, this is without giving all the answers, and he'll begin, because the second half of Mark's gospel is detailing exactly how this comes about. But he gives it to us for, kind of in seed form here, when he says, many who are first will be last. Well, who is first? It's Jesus, who in very nature, being God, talk about being first, as Philippians 2 puts it, did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, something to hold on to. But what did he do? He made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. He put himself not in fourth place, not in a hundredth place. He made himself Last, becoming obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. Why? Because the unexpected resolution to the dilemma is grace. Do you understand the story of Jesus is a story of grace, that the DNA and the fuel, the engine that propels, that defines the kingdom of God is grace. And we're all sitting here and we're going, we're Christians, we get that, we understand that, of course. Hmm. Do we? I know we believe, but do we connect that with how we live? I want to close with a couple quotes. This is, Andrew has so rightly reminded us, he taught on it in Discipleship Hour, the fact that we are acknowledging and celebrating the fact that, it's actually Tuesday, will be the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's posting on the uh, door there at Wittenberg, the 95 Theses, a time where God in his providence was moving to have his people reform and explore the meaning of the gospel in relations to things like scripture and faith and the glory of God and the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Luther and the Reformation had as one of its central emphases the beautiful doctrine of justification by faith, which is the answer to the question this young man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
The answer is nothing. There's nothing you can do with man. This is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, and he has performed it for you. He has done it for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We understand, but we don't understand. We believe, but we don't believe. Let's do some heart work and press it home because I can't help but think on this 500th anniversary of the Reformation that maybe it's the church today that needs some reforming. And we need to think about how do we need to be reformed. And I think we need to be reformed in this actual understanding of what grace is all about. So let's do some heart work here for a minute. A theologian by the name of Richard Loveless wrote this particular paragraph. These two quotes are fairly long, so stay with me. Loveless writes, Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Now, let me pause and read that again and apply this. Only a fraction, even if there's 90 to 100 of us in this room, a fraction if there are millions of Christians today, a fraction are solidly appropriating. That means millions might be believing, believing it. How many are appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives? So that's the first question. Not am I believing it, but am I appropriating? Am I connecting the dots to what I believe, and am I appropriating its reality in my life? Loveless continues, many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. They rely on how they're doing, I'm having quiet times. My day must be going well. I'm tithing. And I wrote you a letter. I want you to keep tithing. But my finances should go well. That is the wrong paradigm that Jesus presses into. He says we draw our assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious Willful disobedience. Loveless writes, few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform. And now he gives Luther's platform. You are accepted, looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance, relaxing, I love this quote, relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce Increasing sanctification as faith is active in love. Much that we have interpreted as a defect of sanctification in church people is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearing with respect to justification. You hear what he's saying? Much that we interpret as church leaders and say, why can't the church get their act together? Why can't we evangelize more? Why isn't our worship more powerful? is not a defect in the sanctification, Loveless writes, as much as it's a lack of appropriating of the power and reality of the righteousness of Christ, the acceptance of Jesus. We say we get it. Loveless is saying we don't get it. The question is, do we do the heart work on ourselves or do we just go through the motions? He says Christians who are no longer sure that God loves them and accepts them in Jesus 
apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and a defensive criticism of others. You hear what he's saying? If we're not sure Jesus loves us, we have to be sure of our own rightness, and that's going to lead us to be critical of others. There's not going to be, because if we're not sure that by an alien righteousness we are truly accepted, we are radically insecure. Where do we get that acceptance from? Where do we get that sense of we're okay? So at heart, if we're not trusting, if we're not appropriating our okayness in Jesus, where do we get it? we got to find it on our own. And that finding it on our own means our approach in functionally to relationships is we are going to be critical of ourselves and critical of others. We have to be critical of, our, of others in order to feel okay about ourselves. Do you see what happens when we are not appropriating the work of justification? He said, those who are not appropriating the work of justification come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. So what was Luther's platform that Loveless was saying, church, wake up and start each day with a thorough going. Do the heart work, a thorough going. Not simply what you believe or what you accept, but what are you basing your data, what are you functionally appropriating in your life? Luther says, there is a righteousness, which Paul calls the righteousness of faith. God imputes it to us apart from our works. In other words, it is passive righteousness. So then, have we nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? No, nothing at all. For this righteousness comes by doing nothing, hearing nothing, knowing nothing, but rather in knowing and believing this only, that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father, not to become our judge, but to become for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, our salvation. Now God sees no sin in us. For in this heavenly righteousness, sin has no place. So now we may certainly think, although I still sin, I don't despair. Because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. In that righteousness, I have no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life of mine and in my own righteousness, but I have another life. The unexpected resolution is I have a substitutionary life. Another righteousness above this life, which is Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, maybe it is us who need some reforming of ourselves to truly understand the nature, the DNA of Jesus' story. My prayer for myself and my prayer for Spruce Creek Church is we would imagine what would it be like for us to appropriate in our lives the justifying work of Christ. What would it look like to sit down together and dream how might we be less defensive and less critical and more hopeful, more encouraged, less disheartened, more cyni- less cynical through the justifying work of Christ. Lord, you've given us your word out of love. Help us now to appropriate it 
through your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.